At our prayer meetings on Wednesday evening, we have been working through one of the most important of, well, all of the Bible is important, but especially you will be blessed if you study carefully Paul's great letter to the Ephesians. It was written while he was in prison. And in the first uh, three chapters, there is much doctrine given. It's interesting to me that in these chapters he talks about those things which so often we argue about, predestination and election. He begins, someone has said, in the heavenlies, and he ends in the kitchen. As Paul often does, he shows us that doctrine is being taught to us in order that we might put what we believe into the way in which we behave. And so at chapter 4 of Ephesians, he starts to uh, put into uh, a practice, make us put into practice what we've learned. And then when we come to chapter 5, we deal especially with this new society which God has created as a result of those whom he has called into faith in Jesus Christ. Let me begin reading at verse 15 of chapter 5. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wife ought to be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline 
and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he be slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Amen. The Spanish have an interesting proverb that an ounce of mother is worth a ton of clergy. <laughs> and I think it's a very interesting and true proverb, too. Uh, someone is, of course, today we're going to talk about the home, and so we have to begin by talking about marriage. I, I heard a very interesting sermon the other day called Four to Get Married. And someone said, well, preacher, it only takes two to get married. Uh, it takes a single daughter and an anxious mother. Uh, but uh, really, therefore, to get married in the true sense of the word. And uh, uh, that has to do um, with a loving husband and a submissive wife, and above all, the lordship of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. These are all concerned with a proper marriage. Yesterday, there was a beautiful marriage here in Gaither Chapel of two young people from our congregation who are strong Christians. They wanted the passage from Ephesians, which was studied, which was read today, read at their wedding. We had gone over it uh, privately at home, and, and Dr. Da Reverend David Parks also uh, loves that passage just as I do in his uh, assistance with that wedding. The reason that Paul wants us to understand this and the reason this topic is so important to us today is that when he wrote his letter to the Ephesian Christians, he realized that there would be not only mature, older believers in the Lord Jesus who had accepted him as the Messiah from the Old Testament with their wives, but that there would also be children in the congregation and that as a part of the household in those days, there would also be slaves who were considered a part of the household because they were the responsibilities of their owners. And while some of the words may seem quaint and out of date and a battleground for controversy to people who wish to argue, if you go and read these words carefully, they can be a great blessing to you and they can guide your home in the right way. I remember reading as a history major about the Battle of Waterloo. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most decisive battles in all of human history. It was fought on June the 15th, 1815. And on the day in which it was fought, one tremendous battle took place in an orchard where fruit was just coming into ripening. 
And one observer said that he could not help but think of all the death and the blood and the hatred and the carnage that was taking place as the shells exploded and men cried out in agony and pain. When all about there was luscious fruit that was ripening on the trees and it could have been a place of satisfaction and of joy and of peace. Well, you can come to these passages of Scripture to argue whose rights are whose. Or you can come to them not to battle, uh, but to gain the fruits. And if you seek to be satisfied upon these fruits, you can strengthen your marriage, and you can strengthen your home, you can strengthen your relationship to other Christians, and it is terribly needed today. I think most of you are sophisticated enough to know that A.C. Nielsen is not a fundamentalist preacher. He is a man who is responsible for evaluating who watches television. He really doesn't care a whole lot about what's watched. He simply monitors and reports uh, uh, the people who are viewing. And in his report, he makes this statement, and I checked this again this morning, that children under five watch 23 and five-tenths hours of TV. High school graduates, by the time that they're grown, have watched 15,000 uh, hours of television. They have seen 350,000 commercials, and they have watched 18,000 murders. And when you stop to think that any three-year-old can toddle over and pull on the television switch, you can see that the media almost governs our lives. And that's why it's so important that parents exercise authority in raising their children in a way that will bring honor to Jesus Christ. I wrote to NBC and received this copy of the script of a television program that happened to be a very good television program that was uh, produced and directed by Joseph DeCola and was written in part and narrated by Edwin Newman. It had to do with a particular county in California called Marion County. That county in California is one of the ten wealthiest counties per capita in the United States of America. It's called by some writers who have written Marion County up as the Golden Ghetto. You would think because of the scenic beauty that surrounds it and because of the ideal climate conditions, probably the best climate this side of the Mediterranean, and because of the high level of income, even the cottages there cost $175,000, and a full house costs a million and a quarter, that these people would be happy. But they have proven that this is not happiness when you pursue material goals alone. They are the center of what is called the me culture. Their divorce rate is 75% of the people have been divorced, 75%. Their suicide rate is over twice the average uh, suicide rate of other counties in America, over twice the national average. 
They have far more psychiatric disorders. They have far more alcoholism, far more drug addiction. And in the interviews that take place that you read in here from the drug stores and the medications that are purchased, from the lawyers that are talked to and the other people, you can see that those who go after a pleasure, fun-oriented culture are doomed to a sort of self-destruction. Elizabeth Elliot came here to our campus and spoke uh, one day last fall. And then I received, uh, or my wife received and showed to me, a copy of an address which she had made at Gordon Conwell's Theological Seminary, a very important seminary near Boston. She had been to a church of all places and had seen in the fellowship hall where she was to give an address to one of the organizations of the church, a banner in back that said, if it feels good, do it. Nothing, absolutely nothing, could be more contrary to the teachings of Jesus. And to find this in a church is just almost appalling. I didn't feel like getting up this morning. Probably some of you didn't. I often do not sleep well. And yet nothing can really be accomplished in life unless we're willing to go against instant instinctual gratification. If each one of us does as what he pleases, uh, we will not get much accomplished. We will become selfish and destructive. No great society can live on such a shallow philosophy. This has been dealt with in a major book called The Culture of Narcissism. You remember from Greek mythology that Narcissus was the young man who looked at himself, reflected in water, and fell in love with his own reflection. But when we become self-centered, we go exactly opposite to what Jesus said. When Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? What if he has the most beautiful home in Marion County, California, right next to the San Francisco Bridge? What if he has a million and a half dollar house? What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What do we do with the words of Jesus when he says, whoever keeps his life will lose it? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this shallow philosophy which is embraced by a great many movie people and other people. I saw Jane Fonda the other day demonstrating at some nuclear reactor plant, and I thought more kids will die on dope at that demonstration than the nuclear plant is likely to hurt. Uh, you, you see, uh, you, you see a, a hedonistic way of life, a pleasure-oriented, fun-oriented culture that is bent away uh, from the plain teachings of Jesus. Now, when we come to this matter in Ephesians of applying what Christ has taught, we see that it is contrary to these philosophies that I have just referred to. First of all, he tells us that we are not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What do you think the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit would be? I know that there are spectacular gifts of the Spirit, such as speaking in tongues or the working of miracles or other great things that people have experienced. 
But in this particular passage of Scripture, Paul tells us that being filled with the Holy Spirit is being marked by being joyful. This is not a superficial joy such as these people talk about, which is just pleasure-oriented. But it's a deep satisfaction that comes from a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. It's the kind of joy that Mother Teresa, the woman in Calcutta, who had no children of her own, but because of her love for Jesus Christ, has caused to be placed institutions for the destitute and the dying, the unlovable people, the people that are rejected and ignored and turned away from by others. And she, in this book by Malcolm Muggridge, is one of those lovely people who, touched by Jesus Christ, has a joy and a satisfaction that could touch a crusty old television commentator like Malcolm Muggridge to the core of his being. He says at one place in this book that in their filming of a scene, they were in a dismal, cavernous, dark place where many people had been brought off the streets and were dying, and that the filming technicians all said when it was over, well, it's no good because the, the lighting was so poor, the, the film will never come out. And he said to their amazement when they got ready to edit the film and they showed it back that it was, that the lighting was just perfect for what they started to show. And Malcolm Muggridge in his own extraordinary way of speaking says, I'm sure that the secret light came from the face of Mother Teresa. You see the joy that comes through a life of sacrifice that's yielded to Jesus Christ. So one mark of the Holy Spirit is joy, a deep confidence in spite of circumstances or difficulty. And the sharing of that joy, Paul speaks about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. I loved your singing this morning, and especially Roberta's uh, having the little children sing, Joy is like the rain. And then thankful that uh, we're not to go around griping or complaining. What kind of world would it really be like if every Christian prayed each day, Dear Father, help me today not to be a complainer. I used to know an old man someplace who said that one of his prayers was that if he couldn't do anything that day, that at least the Lord would keep him from being a burden to someone else. <laughs> and it's not a bad prayer to make. In fact, it's a very good prayer to make. And so he teaches us here some lessons which we need very much to learn. He teaches us also that this third characteristic of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not to be afraid to be submissive to one another in Christ. You have to have some order and control, and so someone must be head. And you have to have responsibility. Above all is the headship of Christ. But in the home, the husband is to be the head, but his, his authority is coupled with his relationship to Jesus Christ, and Paul makes this very plain. He is not saying that the woman is inferior. He is not saying that the husband is to be a tyrant. It does not say husbands, boss, uh, wives, submit. 
It says, husbands love and wives submit. And the measure of love that he gives us there is the love that is at Calvary, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And that type of submissive love, which comes from loving as Jesus loved and went all the way to the cross, makes the love in the home a greater responsibility upon the husband because he has a deeper responsibility to carry out. And we're also to be subject to one another in the Lord. And when I think of the night on which Jesus was betrayed, how his disciples had gotten into a bitter argument about which one would be the greatest, and an ambitious mother had gone to Jesus and said, which of my sons will, uh, will you grant that they can sit the one on your right and the one on your left in your kingdom? And then they argued about all of this going into the place where the Last Supper was to be held. And do you remember what Jesus did? He took a basin and filled it with water and put a towel about his waist and washed their feet. He did this as a matter of service and gave us an example that we should follow. And so here we see an example of service. He goes all the way to the cross to die to take away our sins. And he humbles himself as a servant to wash the feet of his disciples and tells us that we should be servants of one another in the Lord. And then I want to, uh, we just don't have time to take it all, but I want to go quickly to children. We are to uh, think about our children here that children have rights. There are four purposes of marriage. God said it is not good for man to be alone, and he meant for us to understand that. It's important to remember that when Adam was cast out of Eden, he took his wife with him. They went out together. It's not good for man to be alone. Uh, he tells us that children or a blessing. If you study carefully the Bible, you will find that children are looked upon as a great blessing. Study the 127th Psalm. Uh, study the prayer of Hannah for the gift of a little boy, and you will see how great that is. That means to me that children have a right to be born. And in a day of easy abortion, where many people do not understand what terrors have taken place with over a million four hundred thousand babies being killed last year by abortion. This hurts if you're a sensitive Christian. I had a medical student tell me that standing seven feet away from where an injection of saline solution was placed onto a 22-week-old fetus, and the skin was being burned off, and that infant inside its mother was dying, was to him a feeling akin to what hell would be like. When he thought of something so terrible and yet not anything that he could do about it, and yet he also recognizes the fact that there are needs that should be met, that we in the church should operate homes 
for mothers who have a death wish for their unwanted baby, where we could take them and raise them like Mother Teresa and like many other thoughtful Christians are praying about. God can forgive this sin, but God also wishes to lay upon us our responsibility not to look upon a thing as easy as it is to say abortion instead of kill, but to look upon the fact that any country that goes this way, even Japan, has now got tremendous problems as a result of this, and they were the uh, first in the leading the way toward an easy abortion law. We need to stop and to think, rethink these things, and Christian people need to make known uh, what is there. And they need to see the great preciousness that exists in a child. You have seen me bring out before a copy of a book that's very precious to me, a book by, by George F. Barber, which is about Alexander White. He was the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and he was the principal of New College in Edinburgh, and he was one of the greatest teachers and preachers who ever lived in all of Scotland. I loved Alexander White very much. I used to eat in the dining hall at New College in Edinburgh and look up at that tremendous portrait of him that hung there, and I thought about him, and I thought about his mother, Janet Thompson. His mother had become pregnant. She was dating a young man whose name was White, but when she told him that she was pregnant, he offered to marry her, but she knew that he didn't love her. And so she said that she would not wish to marry him because he did not love her. He came over here to the United States, Alexander White's father. Her mother and father, Janet Thompson's mother and father, were weavers. They had a very humble, poor home. But they didn't cast their daughter out. Far from casting her out, they showed her Christian love. And their little baby was born and she named him White after his true father, Alexander White. And that little boy, when he was nine years old, the power looms came in, and these poor weavers were put out of business because they couldn't weave cloth. And as a result of it, just the matter of getting enough food to eat became a tremendously difficult task for, for his mother and for her parents. And finally, when they could not support him any longer, she had to walk into a city that was some 12 miles or so from their little town of Kurimur. And when she walked into that city, she cried every single step of the way, wiping the tears out of her eyes with her apron because she was a mother who loved her little boy. And all the way along, that little boy was saying to her, Mother, please don't cry. Please don't cry. When she got into the city where she had arranged to have him apprenticed to a cobbler, a shoemaker, so that he could ha at least have food to eat and a place to sleep, she started out of town. She stopped by the kirk, and she met in the kirk a minister 
who was not eloquent and gifted in speech. And who Alexander White said later when he was a great scholar, only got through the University of Edinburgh's new college by the kindness of Dr. John Duncan, who was the professor of Hebrew, and saw that there were things more important than just learning a language. But the man had a heart for God, and he taught this little boy the catechism, and he taught him a love for Jesus Christ. And so Alexander White became a distinguished scholar, a brilliant classical scholar, and a considerable theologian. And when he was made moderator of the Church of Scotland and chaplain to the Queen, and all of that august body of people had assembled in the General Assembly's halls in Edinburgh, Alexander White stood and he told the people, let, let me read you his exact words, your present principle, gentlemen, is often looked for a good opportunity of speaking a word of hope and encouragement to the poor students among you. A word of hope and encouragement such as no other man in all of Scotland could speak. And now that such an opportunity has come, let all of those students whose fathers came over with William the Conqueror, they were the upper class, put their fingers in their ears. For what I have to say is not suitable for them to hear. It will not interest them. Well, gentlemen, your present principle has been told that there was a full and kind-hearted house on that night when the General Assembly led him to receive his orders. He was led in, into a big standing ovation. And it might have been so, but he did not see the assembly that night. All that night his eyes went back 60 years before. Sixty years exactly, at about this very hour in the afternoon. And what he kept seeing and what he sees at this moment was a poor little fellow, 12 years of age, who was saying to his mother, Don't cry, mother. Don't be afraid, for I will go and serve out my time. But mind you, I'm going to be a minister. At that, a great smile of love and pity broke over her strong, sorrow-seamed face, and when she turned away, she wiped the tears from her eyes with her apron and started walking home with a smile. That was a moderator of the General Assembly who would have been aborted for socio and economic reasons. But God had other plans. Moses would have been aborted. Joshua would have been aborted. You can go right back. Beethoven would have been aborted. You take a very powerful thing when you take a human life. And so our children have a right to be born. Our children have a right to be born, and they have a right to be children. We are to give them the privilege of growing up. We need to show them love and praise. We need to allow them to grow. They have the right to a Christian home. We don't work alone in having a Christian home because the Holy Spirit works with us with that joy that I spoke about earlier and with that fellowship that we can have in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and, and that we can have in this church with one another. How many people I've seen helped in this church by Christian people who have been willing to show the love of Jesus uh, to others day by day. 
This is such a, a tremendous thing. I can remember, and with this I'll, I'll close. I can remember a few years ago on Mother's Day, I had received a telephone call from Campus Crusade. It has a group of young people who sing called the New Folk. I don't know how many of you remember that day, but I'll never forget it. They telephoned me, and I know what they wanted. They just wanted to see Billy Graham's house. And uh, they said to me, could, they use, uh, could I use them in the service on Sunday? And um, I thought, and called the members of the session who were very kind to put up with my blunders, and, and uh, they smiled and gritted their teeth and said, oh, go ahead if you think it's all right. And sweet old Dr. Bell, I'll never forget him. <laughs> he, he was willing to go along with it. Well, I got up here early on Mother's Day. And everyone tries to get mother out on Mother's Day. And mother's a little old and not familiar with all this new music. Even if it's Christian music, they can't tell it's Christian music. And uh, so I, when I had drove in the parking lot in back of Gaither, I could hear these enormous amplifiers going full blast and they practically vibrated the fillings in my teeth. Uh, and I came in and I spoke with one of the men and I said uh, to him, can't you do something to have a little more uh, sedate music for the service that today is Mother's Day? And uh, he seemed offended. And uh, so I took him back in my office and tried to explain to him that while this was great down on the beach or with a, young, a lot of young people in many places that, that I wished he would uh, sing the old rugged cross or something <laughs> a little softer and, and try to get across to the people. But anyway, he didn't get my point and didn't really appreciate my trying to tone him down. And uh, so he came out and they went for all the time that I've gone, the end of the service had come and I, I was looking at all the sweet mothers and there's faces were a study in pain uh, and yet they didn't say anything the little children who were on the front row had their hands on their ears like this the music was so loud it was terrible and uh, uh, it, and I just knew that I'd probably get fired after the service and uh, Dr. Bell came up and, and uh, spoke and uh, I have before me what he said, and I want to summarize it in closing. Dr. Bell spoke, Mrs. Bell was in the back in a wheelchair, and Dr. Bell said these words, Christian homes just do not happen. They're built by Christians, by men and women who sense something of the beauty and the wonder and the responsibility involved. After the creation, the home was the first institution that God established. And since that time, it's been the central unit of the social order. In a very large measure, the character of the home determines the character of the nation. The home young in the home, young lives are bent and molded and trained, and they are our citizens of tomorrow. In Japan, one sees dwarf trees, and many of them represent birds and animals and even works of art. They are living trees, dwarfed by a secret process. Their formation 
being determined by careful bending and pruning during their growing years. In a like manner, for good or evil, the home is the place where children encounter those influences that in a large measure determine what kind of people they'll grow up to be. Building a Christian home is not easy, for Satan hates and fights against the efforts of those who would establish such an institution. Only parents who are consecrated to Christ can face the blood, sweat, and tears involved. It takes hard work and courage. There will be sleepless hours. There will be wrestling in prayer. But they do not work alone. The Holy Spirit works in them. A Christian home means, first of all, that Christ is the Lord of the home, that He has preeminence in the lives of those who are there. Now then, he goes on to say, in the Old Testament, we read that the patriarchs pitched their tents, digged a well, and built an altar. How many there are today who pitch their tents and dig their wells, but they make no provision for an altar? The altar is never built, and so there is a lack of the Spirit. There are thousands of houses across America that are fabulous in their appointments for gracious living, but they remain houses only and not homes. A house is built with brick and stone and wood and plaster and so on. It's made with things and furnished with things. A Christian home is built with faith in God, with love, unselfishness, consideration, patience, prayer, work, and praise. It may be humble or it may be a mansion. The training of children is one of the greatest privileges and responsibilities of parents, and Christians must never forget that no child has been trained right until Christ is preeminent in his or her heart. There are many little children, there are many who think little children are too young for instruction about the things of God. But those of us who have tried it know that the little ones listen to the stories about Jesus and they absorb their implications at an early age. In a Christian home, probably the greatest single influence on the children is a realization that their parents want them to know Christ more than they want them to know anything else in all the world. If Christ is given a secondary place in the life of the parents, the children will know it, and no amount of talk can erase it from their minds. A Christian home ought to be the happiest place in the world. There one should find the right perspective toward life. Interesting books carefully selected for adventure and instruction. Games with parents joining with their children in the fun should form a part of the household. Youthful friends should be made welcome. Profitable amusements can be found. Daily prayer and the Bible reading will teach children the difference between temporal and spiritual values and point them to the source of man's ultimate responsibility. A Christian home is held together by the cement of love. Love of God, love of each other, and love of other people. Some time ago, a man observed a snake taking baby birds from a nest across while the mother bird frantically tried to drive it away. 
The nest was across a stream and beyond the reach of the observer. He could only say, Oh, mother, why did you build your nest so low? Only Christian homes are built high enough to protect all concerns. Only those homes where God has given his rightful place can qualify for his promised protection. A Christian home is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. It is instructed in the word of God. It is sustained by the power of prayer and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Those are great words. They're good words. We need homes like that in America. The problems that we see with these hundreds of thousands of young people who are disillusioned on drugs and alcohol only reflect the disillusionment which has occurred in so many homes. It's not that the church has failed. The church is made up of people. It's made up of families. And we have a responsibility, a responsibility to God. So the order is given by Paul in Corinthians and by the Holy Spirit that Christ is to be the head, that the husband is under Christ, that we are subject to one another in love, and that we are to hold each other together in that love of Christ. We are, have a whole lot of cultural pressure stacked against us in our high schools and in our entertainment today. And I hope that you will be able to take to heart some of the things which I've tried to relate, however inadequately, this morning concerning the value of a Christian home. I'm going to omit the last hymn and let us stand for the benediction. Our Heavenly Father, the subject which we have talked about has been very big. And there is a very great need for each one of us to come to you right now in the secret place of our own hearts and to try to think, have we shown to our boys and our girls in our home the love that Jesus would have us show to them? Have we as children shown to our mothers the love that we ought to show to them? Have we all been willing to live under the Lordship of Christ and to make corrections where corrections are due? We thank you that the Holy Spirit has promised to help us. And we need his help, and we ask for his help this day. Will you work so that the most beautiful thing that could possibly happen from this Mother's Day service would be that many people here would go aside to a quiet place and make a high and holy resolve in reliance upon the energy and help and illumination of the Holy Spirit to live a life that their children can safely follow and walk in. And then, Father, help us as children to show the love we ought to to those who have loved and given so much for us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore.